Well, this is our world. This is where we live. Do you know all that about us? It's kind of cool. Huh? We're cool. Right? I would add to this, uh, we've got a cool film festival. You know? I don't know if you were able to check out the uh, Ebert Fest this past week and uh, uh, be a part of that. And and then I would add uh, uh, to that that we've got a cool, uh, you know, marathon. Right? Flat, fast, first class. That's how we do it. And uh, so uh, I didn't know if you were at, I saw some Windsor Rotors in that sea of faces there. I don't know if that's a Windsor Rotor or not, but, uh, you know, anyway. And here's my favorite marathoner. There she is. Yeah, yay. That's right. I had a granola bar yesterday, by the way. It matters. So... Yeah, and then I took a nap. So, that's, thank you. That's right. That's cool. But, uh, you know, if I were uh, looking at this community as a place, you know, for my family, uh, that, that, that's a great uh, introduction. In fact, we've got that link to, to our website and uh, for our uh, candidates for our children's uh, minister search that's going on, and uh, um, uh, we want folks to know about this community and how important it is to find out as much as you can about the cultural and social landscape, and um, as that as an indicator to see if there's a fit, and, and, and especially especially finding out about the cultural landscape is so important if you are a leader. If you're a leader. Uh, because you want to see, you know, how influence can happen in a community. And if you don't understand the community, how can you wisely lead that community? And that's why I show that video. Today, we're going to look at another community. And, and by doing so, I hope it helps us understand the life of an Old Testament heroine that I want us to meet here in a new series. Uh, this morning, we're starting a series over the Old Testament book of Esther. I don't know how many of you have ever read through the book of Esther, but between now and Father's Day, we're going to get to know uh, her story really well. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the Old Testament book of Esther. Esther, we're going to look at Esther chapter 1 today. And you'll find that in your church Bibles on page 354. Page 354 in your church Bibles. In your Bibles, if you'll just open up to about the middle, you'll get the book of Psalms and then flip back. The book before that is the book of Job, and then the book before that is Esther, the book of Esther. Esther chapter 1, I'm going to be reading in just a moment, verses 1 through 9. And the book of Esther is the story about how a Jewish orphan became queen of the Persian Empire. That's, that's the sermon, in a, that's the, the book in a sentence, how a Jewish orphan became queen of the Persian Empire and in doing so saved her people from annihilation. And there's a feast that celebrates uh, what we're going to be learning in the book of Esther. 
uh, it's been celebrated for 2,500 years. It's called the Feast of Purim, the Feast of Purim. And it's uh, held in the spring, uh, just before Passover. And uh, this story, Esther's life, is read every year during the Feast of Purim uh, to remember Esther and to remember what God did through her. And it is a classically told narrative. And by that I mean there's, uh, there's a background. So we'll look at the background of Esther's life this morning. Uh, and, then, uh, and then there are major players. We'll, we'll be introduced next week to the major players of the book of Esther. And then there's even a villain in the book of Esther. And, I, and by villain, I mean a kind of villain. Uh, uh, and, and, then, and then that leads us to a conflict that occurs. And that conflict is, is uh, there's tension and suspense and irony that occurs. Uh, and in the middle of that, there's humor. Listen, the funniest, I believe, the funniest verse in the Bible is contained in the book of Esther. It is. The funniest verse in the Bible. And I'm not going to tell you what that is now. So. Okay, it's Esther 6. It's in Esther 6. That's all I'm going to say. All right. So, got to come to the series. And then there's a resolution after the conflict, and then there's a happy ending. So that's, that's just the, that's the trajectory of this, uh, this, this book. And if we were a synagogue, and I were a Jewish rabbi, I would tell you that the book of Esther answers the question, why are we still here? Why are we still here? That's... That's from a Jewish perspective. What, you know, how is it that the Hebrew people have been preserved for this long? Okay? That's, that's part of what's celebrated in Purim. As Christians, as Christians, this book answers another question, a really a deeper question, and a, and a, a, a richly meaningful question, and it's this. How has God preserved his people from whom the Messiah came. How has God preserved his people from whom the Messiah came? That's what this book answers. So today we're going to look at some events which set in motion Esther's rise to the throne. And so what I want to do is I want to read Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. I want to do that. First, that's the first part of what I want to do this morning. Secondly, I want to talk about Esther's world, and then I want to talk about our world, all right? Read the scripture, Esther's world, our world. That's where we're going. Here we go. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush, that's uh, Ethiopia, northern Africa, At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his throne, from his royal throne, in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet 
lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble and mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. This is God's word. Now, our scripture this morning that we just read begins with the the king of the Persian Empire, a man by the name of Xerxes. Now, if you recall, God's people had been put into exile uh, by the Babylonian Empire for 70 years. God's prophets had pleaded with God's people to repent or you are going to uh, be disciplined by the Lord and they did not repent. And so, um, so Babylon came and took God's people, ripped them from their homeland from the year 606 to 536 B.C. And here's what the Babylonian Empire looked like. And God's people were in exile. Jerusalem was in ruins. Um, And for 70 years, they were taken away from their homeland. Well, Well, they were allowed to return home because in 536 B.C., Cyrus the Great, who was the first king of the Persian Empire, had conquered Babylon. And it was part of Cyrus the Great's policy to allow Israel to return to the motherland. And so Cyrus lived, and he was the first king, and then he died, and then there was the second, and then the third, and then the fourth. The fifth emperor, the fifth king of the Persian Empire, was a man by the name of Xerxes, about whom we read here in Esther chapter 1. And uh, when Xerxes ruled, it was pretty much the, the pinnacle of Persian power. His kingdom, let's see the next slide. His kingdom was uh, three million square miles. I mean, about three quarters the size of the continental United States, which is, think about it, they didn't have cars or planes. I mean, the fastest transportation was a horse. So it was a pretty impressive empire. And we read in the scriptures, didn't we, that he ruled all the way from India to the east, all the way to the west, uh, Kush or Ethiopian, northern Africa. You see that green piece of real estate there about 10 o'clock on the screen. Uh, You see that's Greece, and that's an important piece of this story that we see here. So God's people had returned uh, from exile in 536 B.C. Right about here is the year uh, 483 B.C. So it's about 50 years after God's people have returned to the motherland, but not all of God's people went back to Israel. 
See, some of them stayed. Some of them, some of them said, you know, we kind of like life here. This will be all right. We're just going to stay here, okay? We're going to stay here and live our lives under the leadership of Persia, and specifically there in uh, one of the capital cities, Susa. And what did that leadership look like? What did that leadership look like? Well, that's what we see here in chapter 1. We see here a picture of life in the machinery of Persian governmental leadership, and we are introduced to a banquet. That's how the Persians did it. He, He hosted a banquet. There are 10 banquets in the book of Esther. And you can just follow along uh, the storyline of Esther through these banquets. And at this banquet here in chapter 1 are the elite, the wealthy, the military, the nobility. Why does Xerxes want to have a banquet for them? Well, the backstory, the story that we find out outside the Bible, is that uh, Xerxes wants to attack Greece. See that green piece of real estate I was telling you about? His father was unable to conquer Greece. Uh, He wants that piece of property. He just wants it, you know? Why? Because he doesn't have it. He wants it. But he needs support. So he's trying to drum up the support for a future military campaign to fulfill his imperialistic dreams. And so he hosts a six-month feast in which he schmoozes the empire's elite because he needs their support. And, and one of the arguments, by the way, for the historicity of Esther is uh, the accurate description of life in the empire and especially at court side. And as you read here, it was phenomenal. My goodness. Verse 4 speaks of the glory and the, the splendor and the pomp and the greatness of Xerxes and, and how for 180 days he showed off his riches and he drank alcohol. And then uh, he showed off his pomp, and then he drank more alcohol. And then he displayed his beautiful gardens, and then he topped that off with more alcohol. And how in uh, uh, verse 7 it says, uh, 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 no two wine goblets were made alike. You see that? Wine was served in goblets of gold. Gold goblets, mind you, okay? Not glass. I mean, this is gold, and, and, and each one different from the other. And you can see some of these pictures of what some of these you know, wine goblets look like. My goodness, I'd want to drink coffee out of that if I could. I mean, it's uh, just fascinating about the wealth of Xerxes and how he showed off his riches. And and verse 8 says, uh, uh, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way. That doesn't mean that some could sip out of a straw or some could, you know, no, no, no. I mean, they could just have as much as they wanted. There was no compulsion. And, and, And what's he doing here? He's trying to project that he's a winner. And, 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 His was a culture of honor and saving face and projecting and displaying power. And Xerxes wants to display his possessions and his power and his opulence. He wants to make sure that the nobility and the commoners understand who he is, what he owns, and what he wants them to think he can do. And so that's why in verse 5, he he extends this incredible banquet uh, to not just the elite, but to everybody else, the commoners, from the least to the greatest in Susa. You see that? For seven days in the court of the garden of the king, it was just this beautiful 
splendid, huge pavilion. And, and we learn that Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace. I mean, it's just phenomenal. It's, it's 180 days of unofficial. That's what it is. Okay? That's what we're looking at. And then we read in verse 10, on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from the wine. And that means he was totally inebriated. Uh-oh. He summons his council of seven eunuchs, and he says to them, Go get Queen Vashti. That's in the Hebrew. He's been showing off his possessions. He's been showing off his possessions, and now he wants to show off his ultimate possession. Now, just what is, what is it about her do you think he wants to show off before this banquet hall full of drunken men? Huh? What is it? You, you think it's her brains? Is that it? Does he want her to do some complicated Persian math problems? Maybe, maybe he wants her to lecture, you know, the rise and fall of the Babylonian Empire. Huh? Maybe, maybe he wants to show off her just really neat personality. I don't think so. Verse 11 tells us, To bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. That's what he wanted. And then something totally unexpected happened. Vashti said no. No. She refused. And why? Well, the rabbis taught that what Xerxes wanted was for Vashti to enter wearing only her crown. And she says, Come and parade myself before a palace full of drunken bozos after six months of Miller time? No, thank you. I'll stay home and wash my hair. But here's the problem. Xerxes is at the high point of displaying his honor and power and strength and opulence and might in order to persuade the other leaders to support his military campaign against the Greeks. And she's just challenged his honor. No wonder the Bible says that the king became furious in verse 12 and burned with anger. I mean, he needed, he needed these men to obey his commands at war, but he couldn't even get his own wife to obey him at home. He's got a problem. He does have a problem. And, and, and you know, he was at a crossroads here. I mean, you know, what he should have said was, Honey, I think that I may have said something that could have possibly embarrassed you, and I, I want to make peace. 
But he doesn't say that. He goes to his cronies and he says, fellas, my wife just washed her hair and I can't do a thing with her. What is up with that? And in verses 16 and 18, I mean, uh, this, this you know, crisis emerged. Why, why, you know, his inner council of cronies says, well, Queen Vashti's done wrong and not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. I mean, I mean, I mean, what if this gets out, your highness? I mean, if, what if our wives and the wives across the empire find out about this? Well, well, Vashti doesn't obey Xerxes. Well, why should I obey you? So, your highness, what you need to do is you need to make a law. That'll fix it. Make a law. Verses 19 and 20. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. And also let the king give her royal position to, to someone who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast empire, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. That'll fix it, your highness. Sure it will. Yeah. Now you're thinking, what is going on in their minds to, to, to make them think that they can create a law commanding respect? I mean, what, what's... And I looked, I, I, I did some research in that. And so what I'm about to tell you is what comes from a Greek historian named Herodotus who lived uh, centuries before Christ and... This is, what he, this is what this historian informs us about the way the Persian inner council did business. It's up here on the screen. You've got to see this. It's rich. It is the Persian custom to deliberate about the gravest matters when they are drunk. And what they approve in their councils is proposed to them the next day when they are now sober. And if being sober, they still approve it, they act thereon. But if not, they cast it aside. Well, that's okay. I'll get this, though. And when they have taken counsel about a matter when sober, they decide upon it when they are drunk. <laughs> okay. <gasps> okay. Okay. Well, this may give us a little understanding about how things work in Washington. Um, but... <laughs> who said those who don't learn from history are condemned to repeat it. Well, well, no, don't learn from history. You're repeating it while you're learning. Please. I don't know. So what, what's be, what began as an issue between two people has now escalated into a crisis of empire-wide proportion. And so what the king decides is Xerxes decides to punish Vashti by forbidding her to do for the rest of her life what she has already refused to do that day. Never again shall see, she see his face. And, and never again, that basically means they were divorced. Only she can't leave the palace and she can't remarry. And verse 22 says, Xerxes sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be the ruler of his own household. There. 
And that's the end of chapter 1. Is, is there a sermon somewhere at the bottom of this goblet? <laughs> you know what? There is. There is. And, and here it is. I'll say it in a sentence. Sermon in a sentence. When God puts his people in unsafe situations, when God puts his people in unsafe situations, overwhelmingly unsafe situations, situations, vulnerable situations, when God puts his people there, that same God is present. He's present. He's, he's unabsent. He's present to work through his people to do his will. Now that's the sermon. When, when God puts his people in unsafe situations, he is present to work through them to do his will. That's what I want, that's what I want to give you today. That's what we learned today. And, and let me just break that down. All right, uh, into this first section. When God puts his people in unsafe situations. Let's talk about that first. Xerxes is not safe. Have we figured that out? He, he is not a safe person. I mean, oh my goodness, we, we have the blessing uh, that, that power is not concentrated in one person in our country. We have three independent branches of government, and you, people say, well, why, you know, why do we do that? Because we're a democracy? Well, well um, <laughs> no, it's because people are evil. That's why. That's why. And, and, and Xerxes held great power. And he wielded it unpredictably. And he made decisions based on self-serving motives with impaired judgment. And when you combine absolute power with corruption and cruelty, no one is safe. No one. Ironically, ironically, if Persian, if they were to have a promotional video like what you saw, why, it would have featured a, 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 a very generous empire with a lot of beverages being served and, and would, have, would have featured a well-ordered empire built on efficiently and swiftly produced laws, no gridlock. That would, that's what would have been marketed. But behind the curtain backstage, we would have seen a kingdom led by a megalomaniac who lets others do his thinking for him. Listen, in the book of Esther, the all-powerful Xerxes never once says no, ever. He lets other people do his thinking, but he just signs off on whatever. He is not a good leader. In Esther 1, Persian law is made up on the spot for the benefit of eight people. Eight people, the king and his seven cronies. And these cronies have become so paranoid over the repercussions of Vashti's disobedience, they proceed to send out this silly law to every part of the kingdom, thereby publicizing the thing they want to cover up. Is this any way to run an empire? You know, we have a promotional video that you just saw, and I like it. It is slick. But let me tell you the part of the video that didn't make it. Hmm? 
Champaign is the most highly educated county in the state of Illinois. And yet, one-third of the children entering kindergarten do not have the skills they need to learn. In our county, the number of individuals with salaries exceeding $100,000 has grown 90% in the last decade. And yet, we have the third highest extreme poverty rate in Illinois. Did you know that in our county, the, the cash, the, the, the crop cash receipts last year totaled uh, more than $194 million? That's, that's big money. And yet 20% of the residents in our county struggle with daily hunger. Do you know that our, our unemployment rate is lower than, obviously, the state or the national rates? And yet, in our county right now, 350 children are homeless. Is that any way to run an empire? And now, do you know why we're doing weekend of service, September 24th and 25th? You realize? That's our answer to the question. Is this any way to run an empire? And I'll bet... I'll bet some of you have asked that very question where you live. Tomorrow morning, you're going to drive to work. And, you know, where you work, Xerxes is your boss. You work for Xerxes. And you have no idea what you're going to walk into. It just feels so unpredictable. You ask yourself, how on earth does this place survive? Is this any way to run a business? How can I survive? And in a moment of truth, more than one of you would, would say that about your marriage. Is this any way to run a marriage? And you're here, and, and, and you're here, and, um, you know, this 70 minutes is your oasis of peace in an otherwise stormy and chaotic situation. And on your way here, you, you kind of feel release and relief. And you're connecting with people and connecting with God. And yet, you know, in a few minutes here, as our service concludes, you, you know, that angst is going to be returning because you're going to go back into it. You know what the interesting thing is about chapter 1? We haven't even met Esther, have we? We don't even know who she is. Chapter 1 tells us absolutely nothing about her whatsoever. Huh? But this is the world. This is her world. This is the world into which she's born. And this is what she's up against right here. And Esther 1 sets us up for a storm of persecution that is brewing on the horizon when the power of the Persian Empire will be turned full force against the people of God. How in the world is she going to survive? And not just survive, not just survive, but to actually be an influencer, actually to be used by God to transform where she lives. How is that going to happen? 
when, when, when we're in an unsafe situation? How? And you know what? The answer is the second part of what we talked about in our sermon. You see, when God puts his people in unsafe situations, and please don't forget this, he is present. He's present. He's there. Here's what's unique about the book of Esther. It's the only book in the Bible that does not contain the name of God. Did you know that? God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther. Yahweh, uh, Elohim, Adonai. It's never... In fact, uh, one scholar, uh, 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 Karen Jobes, wrote this. If we were to go through the text and replace Jews with the name of some other ethnic group, there would be no reason to think that the story had anything to do with the Bible. So, So God's name is never mentioned in the pages of Esther, and at the same time, his fingerprints are all over the book of Esther. And, and, and this is something we learn about our almighty God. I mean, see, we're, we're used to God showing up and, and, and fireworks happening, right? And we, earlier in the, the Bible, and in the book of Exodus, we see God at work, and we see how God rescues his people dramatically. Why, in Exodus, there's ten plagues, and the Red Sea parts, and there's a pillar of fire. And, and when, when God comes through, it is very obvious. But in the book of Esther, there's no miracle, there's no visions, no revelation, nobody walks on water. Nobody raises the dead. I mean, well, well, you know, it's like, oh. And, and here's the deal. When you see one of those ten plagues, like in the book of Exodus, I mean, it is easy to say, wow, God is at work. But when you see a king getting drunk, who says, wow, there's God at work? <laughs> and yet in the book of Esther, seemingly insignificant events have disproportionate results. I mean, Xerxes gets drunk. Vashti says no. Esther needs to be pretty. We'll see that next week. This leads to this, leads to this, leads to this, and all of it leads to the unexpected deliverance of God's people. In Esther, we learn about the hidden God who is always there. Always. In this story and in your story. (laughs) That's right. In your story. He is there to work through his people. That's the third part. To work through his people to do his will. Through them, through God's people. The minority. The remnant. And that's who Esther was. Esther was a minority leader in a culture hostile to her faith. And she had two huge barriers. Huge. She was female in a male-dominated culture, and she was a racial minority. And yet, here's the scandal of Esther. The scandal of Esther is that powerful Persian men were outwitted by one Jewish woman. Wow. That's God working through his people to do his work, his way, through them. God wants to change the culture, and he uses Esther to do this. He he uses minorities. He uses remnants to do this. Church family, come on. Remnants always change culture. Always. Always. The, 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 The presence of a righteous remnant can transform a city, can transform a culture. 
And God's way is for us to embrace that role, to embrace our minority role so that we will learn to depend on him as our majority partner. So here are some questions. When you are in your culture, when you are in a culture hostile to your faith, what do you do? Do you relate to it? Do we just wall ourselves off? Do we protest everything? How do you follow God in morally confusing situations? Well, that's where we're headed here in this story. My goodness, next week we're going to learn that Esther covers up her ethnicity. Now, why would she do that? And furthermore, why would she sleep with a Gentile with whom she wasn't married? And why did she buy into the, to the Persian beauty industry? Well, why did she try to blend in at first? He's kind of sticky here, you know? Kind of gooey. And can God still use her and work through her in those situations? I don't know that the first time we see Esther, she's at the pinnacle of spirituality. I'm just not so sure. But I am sure that God is so gracious and he is so patient that he just walks alongside of people who are not where he wants them to be at first, but his grace envelops them and patiently he walks alongside, transforming them into the person that he wants them, him, her, us to be. A leader, a catalyst, someone who, and uh, I'm looking at it through the glass doors here beneath the spotlights on the back wall, contagiously influences our world for Christ. Oh, God does that. It, he did it for Esther. He wants to do it through us. And you know what? You don't have to be queen to do that. Most organizations, listen, most or, you know this, most organizations are led from the middle. Huh? It's the classroom teachers, it's the managers, it's the moms and dads, it's the manufacturing floor journeymen and women, it's the centurions and the sergeants. These are the folks who have the opportunity to wield disproportionate influence as to where they are. You do not have to be CEO to make a difference in your culture. What you need to do is you need to ask this question, though. Is it possible for the Holy Spirit of God to so control my life that I am able to bring peace to whatever situation I step into. In other words, can I just bring the weather with me? (laughs) Can I just, if the Holy Spirit of God is working through your life, yes, yes. And so in Esther, we see how, how on one hand, God lets his people experience injustice, the injustice that accompanies a human king, But on the other hand, in his sovereignty, he is unfolding a mystery that will ultimately lead to a much greater king, a better king, King Jesus. When God puts people in unsafe situations, he is very present to work through them to do his will. Anybody here follow the royal wedding here lately? How can we miss it, right? It's 
been so much buzz in the media. And all this talk in the wedding, you know, there's been speculation about, um, you know, what kind of king might William one day be? I mean, he's a, they're, they're a very handsome couple. My goodness. They're very odd, really. They're handsome. Is he good, though? Will he be a good king, you see? And some have not so subtly hoped that his father might abdicate in order to get past this checkered history and maybe restore some dignity to the crown. Right? Where does that come from? Where does that hope come from? This, this, this hope for a, a good king. Could it really come from a heart that hungers for a real king? Could it come from a heart that, that hungers for a, an honorable king, the kind of king that Jesus is? You see, only a king with perfect character is worthy of absolute power. And only a king who is perfect can wield power with perfect law and perfect justice and perfect grace. And, and, and when it takes a royal decree to get respect from your wife, you don't deserve it. And Xerxes didn't deserve it. Xerxes flaunted power to intimidate people. Jesus set aside power to serve people. Xerxes demanded honor by decree. Jesus attained honor through humility. Xerxes consumed the cup of power for his own selfish purposes. Christ consumed the cup of suffering for the remission of my sins. Jesus is better than Xerxes. He's better. He is the better Xerxes who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He's better than the worst. <laughs> Far better. And you know what? He's better than the pretty good, too. I mean, it, it took principles for Vashti to say no. And Jesus is the better Vashti because he did, in fact, die naked on a Roman cross wearing nothing but a crown of thorns. That's how the Romans put you to death on that cross, naked. Jesus is our true king. He is the true king of our deepest longings. And in his death and burial and resurrection, he proves that God is the master of taking seemingly insignificant events. What really, what was to, what was to the Roman emperor at the time of Christ? What was his death there in Jerusalem anyway? Seemingly insignificant. And yet God took that seemingly insignificant event and he transformed it as he did on that first Easter. And that's how we have been preserved here. And I will close with this quote. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that the worst thing is never the last thing. <laughs>